Now we're going to jump into, um, we're continuing in our series called Rooted, um, where we have been going through the book of Colossians. And so today we're going to be in Colossians 2, we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 15. So if you have your apps or your Bibles, um, you can jump onto those. Um, And I was kind of like, this has been one of those weird ones. Like sometimes you work on a message prep and it kind of all falls into place pretty easily. Uh, This week was not that. Um, And not in terms of the text. The text is actually pretty understandable. Um, but it was more so just really wrestling through, like, Lord, what, what is it you want to say? Like, what, what do we need to hear from this text? Um, and as I was kind of thinking through it, I, like, it, I started to kind of piece together some thoughts. And one of them is this, like, um, you know, you and I, we look at our, the culture around us, because I hear this conversation all the time. We look at the culture around us, and we're like, oh, my gosh, what in the world's happening, right? We see so many things in just our culture at large that concerns us, right? That our culture is, is in so many ways like opposed to the ways of Jesus, if not even combatant towards the ways of Jesus or combative towards the ways of Jesus. And, and it elicits in us kind of like instability and anxiety and fear, like, oh my gosh, what are we gonna be forced to do? Our church is gonna lose the nonprofit status. Look at all the crazy stuff going on in schools. Like all these things, it just kind of elicits all of these things. And I was thinking about kind of our experience here today, because this hasn't been the experience of living in the United States for a long time. Um, you know, I mean, it, it's been a gradual change, but nevertheless a change from kind of a Judeo-Christian ethic to a post-church world that we live in. Um, and I don't, I mean, I'll be honest, I don't know that it's going the other way. That's, that's the reality of what we live in. And, and here's what was interesting is I started to think through that and think through the, the book of Colossians and, and what we've been going through is there are so many parallels between... Um, what we experience here um, in the West um, in, in terms of kind of this, the cultural narratives and what first century Roman culture was like. First century Roman culture was wheels off. Actually, they kind of make look, us look like choir boys as a country. Like there was, there was a lot of things within the culture of the Roman Empire that would feel really uncomfortable to us, that were very normative. And, and it's the same kind of tensions that you and I feel about some of these, these cultural things that feel like they invade the church. It's very much going on in first century Rome. Um, but here's what I found interesting as I was <clears throat> kind of processing through that. If you look across Paul's letters um, and his writings to churches that were primarily in Roman provinces and in, in, in the Roman, Greco-Roman world, he doesn't spend a ton of time focused or fixated on what's going on out there. You guys think about that. Like he does address it. He addresses cultural issues and he addresses sin in the world and not being in, of the world. And so he doesn't not talk about it. But Paul tends to spend a lot more time calling the church to look at the dangers within them more so than the dangers around them. And when I say within them, I would say it's two-sided. One, there's a danger of, of within us individually that my heart is wicked and deceitful above all things. But also there's a danger in the us, it, it, within us as in terms of like the church community. That within the church ourselves, we have to be protective and careful about what's going on. And we talked about it a little bit last week and we're gonna continue this week and next week where Paul starts to address this false teaching that's been going on. These things that were happening inside of, or, the, or the potential of what was happening with inside the church of this, the, the, this false teaching that seemed spiritual and, and, and seemed valuable, but Paul's saying it isn't. It was, it was kind of a religious, intellectual, moral elitism that lacked humility 
And that was beginning to seep its way in. And you see this in different forms in different churches. You see it really strongly in Galatians. Um, But here, even Colossians, Paul's addressing this thing, and it's kind of a a philosophical, religious kind of hodgepodge of things. You know, some scholars think it's like an early form of Gnosticism, which you can Google search that if you want to know more about it. But but there's a sense that there's that within the within the four walls of the church, there is this thing bubbling up that is actually counter to the gospel and works against the gospel. What it does is it dilutes it. And as we talked about last week, right, it becomes a distraction and it deceives. It starts to pull us in different directions and gets us focused on the wrong things. And, and I really think that our battle is very much the same thing. We tend to focus on the things that we're afraid of or that seem dangerous outside of us, and we can ignore the enemy within us. Again, within our own hearts, that kind of almost pharisaicalism that can kind of just rise up within us as we start to feel that we're better than those around us or those outside of us or definitely those people who do those crazy things. And as a church, we can, we can get distracted and, and diff, diffuse out the gospel and start focusing on a bunch of different things that are less than Jesus, which is kind of what we talked about last week. We start worrying about things like how things look or how, um, how people vote or do, like how they live, like certain things that we do or expectations, cultural expectations, religious cultural expectations that become kind of a priority <clears throat> almost more than Jesus. And, and I said this last week and, and I'm more and more convinced of it. The enemy doesn't care how you are distracted as long as you're distracted. He doesn't care. He can, you can be distracted by feeling like you're morally and spiritually superior Or he can distract you by making you feel like you're worthless because of your brokenness and your sin. He doesn't care as long as you're not focused on Jesus. As long as you're distracted from Jesus. That's the game. That's the goal. And so last week we talked about this idea of target fixation, right? That that we want to live lives that are centered on Jesus, focused on Jesus, that he is our first priority. He is, like like, uh, Hebrews talks about that, right? Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. And Paul talked about how, hey, in the same way you came to Jesus by grace through faith, you walk in Jesus by grace through faith. And that we are rooted in him and established in him and and we're being built up, that there's this work that he's doing as we stay focused on Jesus. He's doing this work in us. It's a partnership, right? Like it's not just all on him and it's not just all on us, but as we learn to trust him and walk with him and surrender to him and confess and repent, he reshapes and remolds us and changes us so that we become more and more like him. That's the whole thing. That's, That's what sanctification looks like. And so we talked about that idea of being fixated on him. And so Paul's kind of continuing that train of thought this week in verses 8 through 15. And here's what I love about Paul is whenever he's dealing with this, these kind of things that can either distract us or deceive us, his primary weapon is the gospel. The, the primary thing Paul does is he tells us to fix our eyes back on what we're supposed to be fixed on, which is the good news of Jesus, so he doesn't start chasing the problems like, hey, stop doing that. Stop, wait, no, stop, whoop, 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 like chasing your kids around the house. He's like, no, 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 everyone, look. Look at Jesus. Let me, let me remind you of who he is. Let me reinforce in you what he's done and what he's about and what that means for you, right? That's what he would do. He would focus on that. Ultimately, that Jesus is enough. It's in many ways the heartbeat of the whole letter to the Colossians. 
that he's more than enough. And as we heard in like chapter one, in the first part of chapter, or mostly in chapter one, that that Paul said, hey, I long for you to really know this. And that was that word epigonosco, right? We talked about like, like not just know in terms of like my head, but that that my whole being would be um, overwhelmed by a trust and a knowing that Jesus is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do. And I can bank my whole existence on that. I don't have to worry about anything other than Jesus. Like he is it, right? That's what Paul's been longing for, for the church to know. And we're gonna see him double down on that today. So let's pray together and then we're gonna jump into the passage. Jesus, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. And just what we've been learning, Lord, as we've studied so far um, and how easily we are distracted and how easily we can be deceived and how quickly we focus on maybe things that aren't that important and we miss the things that are important, Lord. And I, I pray that this morning you would again call us back to yourself that as we as we take a few minutes just to gaze at the majesty and beauty of the good news, your gospel, Jesus, that that would change us. That the truths that we're gonna talk about that, that Paul expresses in this passage, Lord, that they, would, they wouldn't just be something like, oh, I've read that before, and it would stick in our head, Lord, but it would, it would cut through the deepest parts of our soul, that it would sit in our hearts and that it would from there change us that it really would be rooted in us and that out of that we might live differently and love differently and serve differently and believe differently and experience fullness of life in a way maybe that we've never had before. That's what I've been begging for all week. That's what I beg for in my heart. It's what I beg for in the hearts of every person here. You are a good and loving God. So we ask you to change us. We ask you to transform our hearts. And we thank you for your word and for this time and for your son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, grab your Bibles. Look at verse eight. So Paul starts again with a warning, kind of like he did in last week's passage. He says, be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. So his first thing, right, be careful. And it's this idea of like, remain careful. It's, it's like an ongoing, like, hey, keep your guard up. Keep your, keep your, be ready. Be ready for the fact that there's gonna be deception that's gonna come, that, that, there's, that there's, you could be taken captive through these philosophies, right? Stay alert, stay on guard, be attentive. Don't be seduced by these philosophies and worldly things that are gonna come in and try and pull you in different directions. And that word for philosophy, if you look at the like, literal translation of that word for philosophy, it just means love of wisdom, which isn't bad. But, but I think in, in what Paul's trying to tell us here is like, be careful of, uh, that no one takes you captive through this kind of like, like empty philosophy, like almost a desire to look smart a piousness, a, like a spirituality. Like th- there's almost this, this thing in us that kind of, so it's, it's the well actually guy. You ever hung out with that guy? When you're like, hey man, this is this. And he's like, well actually. Like, you know that? Like it's that kind of a thing. Like there's, there's, there's these, this pursuit of knowledge almost apart from Jesus or kind of in many ways making this understanding or knowing of things supersede Jesus, be above Jesus. And in that you see a lack of humility, right? A lack of meekness. All of God's contained in Jesus, but Philippians says that Jesus never, never took advantage of that reality. He never lorded it over. He humbled himself. 
He was wisdom itself. And he didn't walk around with his disciples going, well, actually, guys. Right? Paul's saying, be careful of these hollow, decept- hollow deceptive human wisdoms that are based on human traditions and kind of like the elements of the world. That idea of human traditions is, in many ways, and there's debate about this passage, it's kind of a funky passage in the Greek, but the best way I could describe it is the idea of human traditions in terms of like cultural religiosity and morality. And he'll touch on one in a second, the idea of circumcision. And so there were these cultural practices, right, that were spiritual. And so it was like, hey, like don't, don't get deceived by those as somehow those are more important. That somehow looking a certain way or following a certain tradition or custom, that that some, somehow makes you more spiritual or, or closer to Jesus or, or a better Christian or whatever. By the way, I hear that phrase a lot. I just want to be a better Christian. It's a weird, I mean, I get the intent, but that's kind of that, right? It kind of mixes together. These weird things mix together for us. He goes, you know, like stay away from those hollow deceptive wisdoms that are based on human traditions or on the elements of the world. Um, And again, a lot of debate, but this idea that um, things the way we think they are. So hey, be very careful that no one takes you captive through philosophies and deceit based on traditions and based on just how things seem like that just makes sense. That's how it should work, right? A good illustration might be karma, right? Like, oh, yeah, if you're good, good things happen. If you're bad, bad things happen, which is totally not biblical. And yet I hear Christians say that all the time. Like we, 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 we do this thing called syncretism. So we take the philosophies of the world and the influences of the world and we take our faith and these, those things collide together. And then all of a sudden we have this weird mix where we're saying dumb things like, well, if I'm, if I'm really good, then God's going to bless me. Or, or man, like, I, it's probably because I was sinning that God didn't bless me in this. Like, like if, if that's true, if Christian karma is a real thing, then someone explain Job to me. And even better yet, someone explain Jesus to me. There was no one better than Jesus, and yet he took on all the sins of humanity. Paul's life was no, like, you know, wasn't rainbows and butterflies either. And he seemed like a pretty solid dude. Right, So this is what happens, and, and, and Paul's saying, hey, be very careful of these things, because these things are gonna, they're gonna find their way in, and you might be looking at the crazy thing going on out there with gender identities and go, oh my gosh, I'm so worried about that, and not even realize that you're falling into these philosophies and deceitful things that are not Jesus. They're not truth, they're not the gospel, and they're diluting the power of the good news. He says, don't get caught up in those things rather than Jesus. Keep Jesus. Don't seek wisdom. Seek Jesus as wisdom, right? There's a huge difference between trying to be spiritually smart and then humbling ourselves and saying, Jesus, like you are wisdom itself. I need all that I, all that I have comes from you. So I'm going to chase after you. And then in chasing after you, I will find wisdom. I will find peace. I will find rest. I will find hope. A very different way of approaching things. In many ways, what Paul's going to unpack as we keep going forward is this idea that Jesus plus anything equals nothing. So when you take the gospel and you add anything else to the gospel, you've lost the gospel. The example he'll use is circumcision. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. And so stay alert. Stay on guard. 
It may sound good. It may make sense. It's not always true. Don't be captivated by things that will make you seem spiritual or wise or or mature because those are actually less than Jesus. And ultimately, as we'll see now, as Paul kind of dives further in, is that we have everything we need in Jesus. That we don't have to add anything to him. That he really is enough for us. And so let's look back at 9. 11. So he goes from a warning, and this is where Paul comes in hot in verse 9. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. The entire fullness of God's nature dwells in Christ. The fullness, it's, it's a word for like completeness or full measure to like overflowing. It's like taking a cup and filling it all the way to literally you can't fit anything else in it. That's the image there. That, that all of God's nature and deity lives in Jesus to the fullest amount. All of his power, all of his life, all of his character, it all lives in Christ. And that shows us our first point in terms of like this idea of... of, of um, what Paul's trying to remind us that we have is that in Jesus, we have his power and his presence. In Jesus, like, so Paul's like, you don't need anything else. Jesus is enough because, because in him, you have his power and his presence. And he says, all the fullness of God dwells in Christ. And then look at 10. And you have been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. And it's the same word for filled. So all of the fullness of God dwells in Christ and you have the fullness of Christ in you. Wow. That's one heck of a statement. That's unbelievable that he would say that. And he's the one who's head over every ruler and authority. So all those rulers and authorities, both natural and supernatural, that you feel are over you. So think back. <clears throat> Greco-Roman culture, right? Not a lot of freedom. They were, they were ruled over by the Caesar and by, by Rome. All of those rulers that you think are over you, yeah, Jesus is over them. He has full authority and full power over them. And you are filled by him. You have the fullness of it. You have his presence and his power dwelling in you. Jesus is enough. We have his power and his presence. We are filled with the presence of the one who is the fullness of God. And he reigns completely over every ruler and every authority. And I think Paul starts here because he's telling us, hey guys, get your eyes up. Like pay attention. Don't get distracted. Don't be deceived. Look at who we're talking about here. We're not just talking about a guy who lived and died on a cross. We're not just talking about a good moral teacher. We're talking about God in the flesh. The creator of all things, the one who spoke creation into existence, the one who knows beginning from end, dwells in Jesus. Like That's who we're talking about. Whatever you believe you might be lacking, he's offering it to you. He is over all of it. He is in all of it. Remember, it goes back to that chapter one passage where he just talks about the deity and the supremacy of Jesus in everything. And he's saying, get your eyes up. Pay attention to what matters. Get focused. Whatever rules you, both whatever you think rules you, both physically or spiritually, he rules over that. For us, like the boss that seems unfair, like, oh, I can't believe I have to work for this guy. And he's like, he's manipulating control. Yeah, Jesus is over him. Oh, I can't believe our politics and this 
this party and that party. And I say, you know what? Jesus is over him too. Jesus is over all of them. But what about like all the anxiety that I fear and the fear that I carry around in me? Yeah, Jesus is bigger than that. He's over that. Yeah, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know the sin and the struggle I have. Yeah, yeah, you know what? Jesus is over that too. Jesus is bigger than all of these things. The entire fullness of God dwells in Christ and we have been filled by him. All those things that we think rule us, Jesus rules over and we have him. We have him. He's accepted us. The creator of all things dwells within you. He is with you. He is for you. There isn't a darn thing that any one of us can do to add to that. I think it's so good that Paul starts here, right? Hey, be careful. Like, pay attention. Don't get pulled in different directions. Don't be deceived. Remember who we're talking about. Remember who your Savior is. Remember who your hope lies in. There's nothing you could do. If, if, if Jesus is who Jesus says, and we've been filled by him, we lack nothing, no matter what the circumstances are. Jesus is enough because we have his power and his presence. The second thing, look at, let's look back at 11 and 12. Jesus is enough because we have his heart and his hope. Verse 11, you were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands, by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ. When you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him, through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Paul brings up this idea of circumcision, right? That that, that, you, that you, meaning church, these, these Gentile believers, you were circumcised with one done not by hands. Okay, so just to go back to your Old Testament, the Abrahamic covenant, when the covenant, one of the signs, or the sign of the covenant was, excuse me, circumcision. I'm not gonna explain it. You all know what I'm talking about, right? Cool, so we don't have to go that deep into it. But it, w- it was a mark, right, on every male that was a reminder that they were the seed of Abraham and that they were, they were, they were a part of a, of a new community and a new family under God. And what better way to be reminded that, that your seed was perpetuating God's plan in creation than where that mark is and what that mark is. Because in intimacy, you're reminded. Kind of amazing when you think about it. That every time that a Jewish family was intimate, being fruitful and multiplying, it was a reminder, hey, this is part of God's mandate and God's plan. That you're part of this covenant family. That that we we are together in one. It wasn't just like a tattoo that they wore. Like it was a mark that they were part of God's family. And Jesus is telling these Gentile believers primarily, hey, you've been circumcised in a way that was, with, was, that was unhandmade would be the literal term for that. That it, it, your circumcision wasn't done with human hands. That it was a spiritual cutting away. Ezekiel 36 talks about this, right? In fact, I think I put it on the slides. Um, this is in the Old Testament, right? Ezekiel 36. The Lord talking about what this new covenant would look like. 
He says, I will also sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully obey, observe my ordinances. And so there you see this, this, even in the Old Testament, you see this picture of what a spiritual circumcision is. It wasn't just about being Jewish. It was about being part of God's covenant family. And now that covenant family is expanding in Christ. And that there's this spiritual circumcision that happens as he cuts away our stony, cold, dead hearts and gives us hearts of flesh that would change. So it's not just changing our behavior, but it's changing our desires, that with a heart of flesh, I can actually, I, I, can des- I desire to be different. Look, all of us get frustrated at our brokenness and our sinfulness, right? Like we get impatient at our kids, or we get angry, or we get snippy with our spouse. And, and there's a part of us that's like, oh, dang it. Like, and because and, we know, like, there's, like shame can kind of come up in that, right? That's a good thing, not a bad thing. If you don't feel any remorse for being a complete knucklehead, that's a problem. Like, that's a huge deal. The fact that we feel conviction is a sign of a new heart. Don't run from that. Turn into that. Don't stifle those feelings of guilt. Bring them to the Lord and say, Lord, I blew it. I I need you. That's a sign of a new heart. That's a sign of a spiritual circumcision that has happened in you as he cuts away or has cut away that old heart and given you a heart of flesh. Jesus cuts away our old heart and our old life and he gives us a new life and we are a new creation and we have a new identity and a new purpose and then we walk it out by not living as our old self. So, so many people, I see it, you guys, like we, there's so many of us, like we live, we live as if our hearts are dead and they're not or maybe they are. And Jesus is saying, that's not who you are anymore. Like, why are you continuing to live that way? Why are you continuing to pursue your lusts? Why are you continuing to lie and cheat and steal? That's not who I've made you to be. I cut that away. Be who I've designed you to be. Who, be, be who I've, I've made you to be. Verse 12, he says, this cutting happened when you were buried and raised through faith. Buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God. We were buried with him in baptism. This is the, the symbolism of baptism, right? It's this public declaration of my identifying myself with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's me saying, hey, I'm, this is the team I'm on now. And the fact that it's public matters. Because I'm saying, hey, I, I no longer align with all of these other philosophies and, and worldly practices, like I align myself with Jesus. He is my hope. He is my rest. He is my peace. And so he says that this, this cutting away, this spiritual circumcision that happened, it happened when you were buried with him in baptism. When you identified, you were co-buried with him, which means that we align ourselves with the death of Jesus. Like I align, like as Jesus died on the cross for my sins, I'm dying to my old self. My old self is no longer in charge. Is there still a residual effect? Yeah. But it is no longer in charge of me. I've died to that old self. And then I am co-raised with Christ, that I'm aligned with the resurrection of Jesus, that I have this new life, that I have a new heart. And that that's what I need to focus on. That's where my head needs to be fixated. And when I struggle, it's like, nope, that's a dead guy. That's not who I am anymore. 
Lord, help me to walk with you. Help me to trust you. Help me to live out this new life you've been giving me because I'm now identified with you. I've been co-buried and co-raised. And all of that was done through faith in the working of God. Not in my faith, not in my abilities, not in how moral I can be or how good I can be or how many Greek words I know or how many semesters of seminary I've gone to or how many small groups I'm a part of or how many Sundays I serve at church. Not based on any of that based on the working of God, my faith in the fact that his work is sufficient to change me, to help me to be everything he's designed me to be and desires me to be. But I want to talk about faith for a second, that word pistis in the Greek. I think we've kind of taken faith and made it all about kind of this thing in our head, like this intellectual understanding or intellectual assent, like, oh, faith, like I have faith. It's actually not really a full enough picture of that word. That, that word in the Greek, yes, there's an, there's, an, there's an understanding, an intellectual understanding that's a part of it. But it's so much more, and, and it really, there's, it, it captures the idea of understanding and the idea of allegiance and loyalty all at the same time. Like, faith is more than just, I believe that that is true. Faith is, I believe that is true, and that compels me to be different and live differently. Remember back like the second week we talked about the chair. I can have faith that the chair can hold me. I'm not actually really showing my faith until I sit in the stinking chair. And that's the point. Like faith isn't just that, yes, I agree with these theological truths somewhere out here. Faith, biblical faith is saying, I believe that Jesus really is enough. So much so, I'm throwing my life on it. I will live in such a way that Jesus is enough. In other words, I will live each day as if his grace is sufficient in my sin. And that if I confess my sins, he's faithful to forgive me and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. I will live each day as if, if, if he says that he will generously provide for me all that I need, that I can be generous with those around me and not have to hoard and protect and try and keep things for myself because he's a good and generous God who is not lacking for resources. And I'm actually gonna live that way. I'm not going to hedge my bets. Remember we talked last week about the idea of um, like this almost like spiritual diversification we do. Like we like, we want a diversified portfolio. It's like, I want to find my grace from Jesus, but I want to kind of find my security from my career. And I want to find like my value from my family. Like we, we kind of mix things up. That is not faith. Anything less, anything you add to Jesus is no longer Jesus. It's an activated belief in the working of God. And faith isn't about the amount of faith you have, it's about the object your faith is in. Where are you focused? And so you can reverse engineer that. If, if your life feels like it's being tossed to and from and you feel unstable, you gotta start to ask yourself, well, where's my faith, actually, where am I focused? Where's my heart's direction? What am I pointed at? Where, 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 what do I... What do I think is going to provide the peace and hope and rest that my heart desires? My guess is if you're feeling that destabilized, it's because your faith activated out is not in Jesus fully. You've diversified. And the primary thing we diversify with is ourselves. Look, let's be honest. You think you're a better God than he is. I do too. Welcome to the club. We can get jackets made. Right? 
This is that struggle all the way back to the garden that we want to be in control. We struggle to believe that he really knows better than we do. Now, in the things that we feel like we have no control over, it's actually kind of easy. Like, well, I don't have any control anyway, so here you go, Jesus. But in the things we think we have control in, man, are we quick to grab onto those things and then try and muscle them around and make it happen. And then shock of all shocks, we live lives of anxiety and frustration and unstable and fearful, all right? Follow the fruit. Where is your faith focused? Who is your faith in? Paul's saying, hey, we have his heart and his hope. Focus on Jesus. Your old dead heart has been cut away. You've been given a heart of flesh. And it wasn't done because you were a genius. It wasn't done because God just had to have you on his team. It was done because he loves you and he's for you. And it was done by him fully and completely. Jesus is enough because we have his heart and his hope. He's given us that new heart that we are truly alive. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, you are truly alive, both now and eternally. And that will reshape our desires and it goes beyond behavior to, to shape, reshaping motives and desires as we learn to respond in trust and surrender and obedience. And as we do that, as we learn to go like, I believe Jesus, you're enough. And so because of that, I'm gonna step out here and I'm gonna, I'm gonna put my weight on you. And then as we do that, that, that confirms our faith and we grow and we mature, that's sanctification. So if this is true, that, that, we, that Jesus is enough and we have his heart and hope, then we can remember and we can respond to that, that we aren't who we once were, that we have this new heart and we knew this new life. And we don't have to live like our old selves anymore. You no longer have to be a slave to your sin. If you're in Christ, your sin has no ownership over you. Now, I know it may not feel that way, just because it doesn't feel that way doesn't mean it's any less true. Like your sin doesn't own you, past, present, future. You don't have to walk it out. If you're struggling with stuff, you can confess, you can repent, you can invite people in to help you. Doesn't matter what it is, impatience, pornography, whatever it is, whatever it is, the thing that keeps kind of has its hooks in you. Like it no longer has to have ownership over you. It doesn't define you. He's given you a new heart and you have the ability to obey him. You have the ability to trust him now. Perfectly? No. But confession and repentance is a form of obedience. So here's what's crazy about the gospel. When you get it wrong, you have all the opportunity to get it right through confession and repentance. Through humbling ourselves and saying, I got it wrong. Please help me. Our hope is in him that he will finish this work that he started in us. We have his heart and we can rest and say like, Jesus, you're gonna finish what you started. And you hear, look at the last line of um, verse 12. He says, you know, he says, when you were buried with him in baptism and you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who did what? Raised him from the dead. Look, if God can raise Jesus from the dead, he can change you. Like, really? Like, you think you're a higher bar than that? 
Like those things that have their hooks in you, those things that you struggle with, he can rescue you from, rescue you from them. He can help you to grow, but it's about surrender. Like we've talked about this over and over again. It's not about trying harder. It's about surrendering more. It's about day by day by day, laying my heart and my head before me and saying, Jesus, take it. it. This is yours, not mine. Third, let's finish off the passage. The third thing we see from verses 13 through 15 is that we have, like Jesus is enough because we have forgiveness and freedom. He says this, and when you were dead in, tre- in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with his obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. When you were dead, he made you alive. Again, that word, same, similar to the co-buried and co-raised, it's the same kind of word construction that we were co-dead in our trespasses. In other words, like you and I, in our tra- we're, we're almost partnered with our, with our sin and our brokenness and we were dead in that. And that Jesus then made us alive together with him. It's done by him. And now we are, we are co-alive in him. My life is his life. He has given me a new heart. He has breathed new life into me. I cannot live apart from him. My life and his, part, his life are now inexplicably tied together, knit together. And he's forgiven all of it, all of our trespasses, every thought, every motive, every desire, every action that you've ever have done or will do that is out of alignment with the way of Jesus, he's been, he's been forgiven for. And in forgiving you, what do you look at verse 14? He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations. In other words, he erased what we owe or like the IOU. So our, our sin creates an IOU that we owe. That debt for our sin would be death, separation from God eternally. And he's erased that debt with all of its obligations that have been opposed opposed to us and against us. And he took it away and he, he nailed it to the cross. It's kind of a beautiful word picture when you think about it, right? Think, think about the worst thing. I always love doing this. Think about the worst thing that you've thought or did. I like watching people's faces as I do this. Right? Like we all know that thing or those things. The things that, that, that kind of can pop up and you're like, whoa, where did, that, where did that come from? Who's that guy? Right? Things that you would never want anyone to know. Things that you're like, yeah, that clearly would separate me from God. Like no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Like that, that is a debt that you owe. And it's not, it doesn't even have to be that bad. Anything, anything out of alignment. It says that Jesus took that certificate of debt. Like, hey, these things, he took them away and he nailed them to the cross. And what he did is he nailed himself to the cross. That he took the punishment for our sin. He took the weight of all of those things. Our sin, the punishment we deserve was nailed to the cross. He bore it himself. And in doing so, verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authority. He disgraced them publicly and triumphed over them. The, the word picture there would be like the idea of when, a, when a, an army and a, a general would come back 
um, from a battle and they won, it would be like this parade through the streets and they would have the prisoners kind of shackled coming alongside them. That's the picture here. Those prisoners would have been disarmed, right, of their weapons. And that's the picture. It's like, hey, all of those accusations, like, like Jesus' crucifixion, his death on the cross for the debt that you owe is so sufficient that what happens is that like, it disarmed all the rulers and the authority. Everyone who could accuse you of these things that you've done, all of that's been disarmed. And, and it's a publicly, it's, Jesus is, um, his grace is so sufficient, or his grace is sufficient in such a way that it creates a mockery of any of those accusations. And in essence, Jesus is parading around anyone, spiritual or otherwise, who would say, yeah, but he did this, and he does that, and they were like this. And he's like, yeah, yeah, all that's been paid for. He disgraced them publicly, making a mockery of them all. He took away the weapons. Those accusations are the weapons. Like there's a reason that the enemy is called the accuser. He's the one that you, that's going like, so you remember? So you thought you changed, but nope, you're the same person. Oh, you, he, he talked about a heart of flesh, yeah. I didn't see that heart of flesh in traffic this afternoon. Right? That's the accuser. That's the enemy. And Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection took all of that debt away. And he makes a mockery of those accusations. They don't hold up anymore. Jesus is enough because we have his forgiveness and in that we have freedom. We have forgiveness for every thought, motive, active, past, present, future. All of it has been paid for on the cross. We have a clean slate. Psalms talks about how it's being white as snow. And we have freedom. All of those accusations that can be made about you, that by the way are true, they don't hold any weight anymore. It's all been atoned for. It's been taken care of. He's disarmed them. Those, those accusations don't stick from anyone else or from you. It's really amazing to me how I think that we, like what often happens is like Jesus forgives us and then we don't forgive ourselves. Like somehow we think we gotta one-up his sacrifice. So we have this thing, this is what I call yeah, but. It's like, well, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Yeah, but, Right? So we pile on these things. We carry around weight that we aren't designed to, weigh, to carry anymore because he is enough for us. All those accusations that could be made that might be true, his grace is so complete that it disgraced the accuser and it makes a mockery of all of them. None of it holds up anymore. And so for you and I, that means we can rest and we can rejoice. If Jesus says you are free, then you are free. So stop living like someone in bondage. Stop it. Stop living like someone who still is kind of like sheepishly going like, oh, well, really hope God loves me still. And I really, Hebrews, have bold access to the throne of grace with confidence. We don't come to him sheepishly. We come boldly. We come and say, Jesus, thank you that your grace is enough. Your grace is sufficient for me. There's, there's nothing that I have done or thought or said that Jesus hasn't given me freedom over. Stop living like a dead person when you're alive. You can rest. There's nothing to prove to him or to anyone else. You can't do more to atone for what you've done. He's already done all of that. And you can rejoice because the good news is worth celebrating. It's worth telling others about.
So as we wrap up, the band's gonna come up. Um, it's really simple. Jesus is enough. Don't be deceived. Don't buy into the lies that you have to add other things or that somehow he isn't enough. The moment you align yourself with Jesus, the moment you place your faith in Jesus, he gives you all that you need. You get his power and his presence. You get his heart and his hope. You get his forgiveness and his freedom. Here's my question. Do you really believe that? Does your life reflect that truth? Romans 12, which is kind of a culmination of Romans 1 through 11. Romans 1 through 11, Paul lays out this just the most comprehensive kind of outlining of the gospel in all of scripture. And then in Romans 12, he says, therefore, in view of God's mercy, present yourselves as a living sacrifice. This is your only spiritual reasonable act of worship. Because of all that Jesus has done, that he has He's given us, he's enough, he's given us his power and his presence, his heart and his hope, his forgiveness and freedom. Because of all of that, the only thing that would make sense for us would just be lay ourselves down before him and say, Jesus, you're enough, I'm yours, and I give myself to you. And so that's what we're gonna do now as we respond. And we probably have a couple different people, people from a couple different kind of backgrounds in here, right? We have some who have not yet aligned themselves with Jesus. Like, I, I'm not at all convinced that everyone in this room is a follower of Jesus. And so some of us have been maybe doing church things or been around churches, or maybe we're just exploring it for the first time. But we've not, we've not surrendered to Jesus. We've not said that he is enough and received his grace, his mercy, and his freedom. We've not experienced that new heart and that new life and the hope so I'd encourage you in this time, we're gonna do a song and then we're gonna take communion together. But as we do that, I would encourage you just to, even just a simple prayer of like, Jesus, I believe you. Like I believe you are enough and, and I wanna trust you and I wanna give myself to you and help me to do that. And if that's you, if that's something that maybe this is the first time for you that you're making that decision, I would, we would love to talk with you. We would love to help you on this journey. You can't do it by yourself. And again, if, if his grace is that sufficient, then man, like, that should be celebrated. There's also some of us, though, who are aligned with Jesus, but really, frankly, we're not living as if he really is enough. At least, at least our life doesn't demonstrate that he's enough. And we've kind of hedged our bets, right? We've diversified our portfolio. We've put our hope in a bunch of different things, and Jesus is one of those things, but he's not all of them. And if I can encourage you, it's time to let go. It's time to let go of the managing of your own sin. It's time to let go of managing how other people view you or perceive you when you know what's going on inside of you. It's time to let go of the control that you have fought so hard to hold on to and retain. It's time to surrender and to stop trying to fix yourself and prove yourself and to simply just come to him and say, Jesus, you say you're enough. And if you say you're enough, then that's good enough for me. And so here I am. Take me and do what you want. That's where he wants us. Not just initially, but day by day. And so take the time to confess to him that his grace is enough and ask him to help you to trust him. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna end with two songs back to back. 
And so this will just be a time for you to just kind of process, to, to be reminded of the good news of Jesus and to wrestle through the things that the Spirit might be bringing up in your heart that you, you need to address. Sin that's unconfessed, fear, anxiety, all those different things. It's a time to confess those things. And then in the midst of that, at any point in the next few songs, you're welcome to come to any one of the tables that we have of communion elements. And we're not gonna bring them all back and take them together like we've done in the past. This, this is just a day for you to kind of do that. You can do it as a family unit. You can do it as a small group. You can just, you can, you can if you need to just pull away by yourself and find a corner. But communion is that picture, right? It's, it's, the, it's the image of, it's a reminder of Jesus' death on the cross. His body broken for you, his blood shed for you so that you could be made whole. And so as you process it, then you go take communion and, and be reminded, wow, Jesus, you really are enough. And this is a tangible picture of a way that I can remember that. And then thank him. Thank him with your whole heart. Thank you, Jesus. That all the stuff that goes on inside here and inside here no longer defines me. I'm now defined by you wholly and completely. And I am a beloved child of God. So I'm gonna pray for us and then we'll take this next two songs to pray and process and take communion. So let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for today and the chance that we've had to walk through your word. And Jesus, you know my heart. You know how frustrated I get with myself, both just my sin, but also I, I, I always feel like I can't articulate how amazing you really are. And words fail, but you never fail. And so, Lord, I pray you would take the kind of feeble fumblings that just went on, Lord, and that you would root these things in our hearts, that we truly would know with every fiber of our being that you are enough, and that that would change the way we live and love and serve. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the cross. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.